Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the life and philosophy of Bishop George Berkeley, the great British empiricist philosopher one of the founders of the uh, modern, <laughs> although he lived in the 17th century and the 18th century, philosophy of idealism. Bishop Berkeley is the person for whom the city of Berkeley, California was named. My guest is my good friend James Tunney, author of The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution and The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism, as well as many other books, including two novels. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Uh, and the pleasure is mine, Jeff. Thanks, thanks very much for the opportunity. I look forward to the conversation. Well, Bishop Berkeley is a seminal figure. I think he's often studied by most college undergraduates. His philosophy seems to be one of the most difficult things for people to grasp is his notion of idealism. And I know you have a very different take on Bishop Berkeley than I'd ever heard because of your background as, uh, as, as I guess it's not a dirty word to call you an Irishman. <laughs> uh, it depends who you're talking to, Jeff. Jeff. Uh, yeah, I, I do think that an awareness of Irish history, now without reliving the past and going fighting all those battles again, but uh, it's important. And it's not just Irish history, because in many senses, Irish history was relevant in relation to understanding the colonial experience. So it's been relevant to people in the Caribbean, uh, Africa, all around the world. And from that knowledge of, of uh, Irish history, I think it gives us a good idea of who the bishop was. So certainly uh, uh, my emphasis uh, is informed by, by that knowledge and, and people can interpret whatever way they want. And uh, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of discussion about Bishop uh, Barclay and the extent to which he, he can, he can be regarded as evidence of an Irish philosophy or the greatest Irish philosopher. And I think it has to be put in context of, of, of where he came from and, and, and that particular context. And, and in particular, I would, I would emphasize the fact that he is basically an imperialist and a colonialist. And, and we can't disregard that. No matter how much we want to segregate his work and focus on the particular particularities, that's really the context in which he came from. Yeah, I, I get that. And at the same time, I would have to say in, in all of my previous studies of, of philosophy and uh, Bishop Berkeley's idealism and his empiricism, the fact that he was a, a, a British uh, colonial upper class uh, person uh, was never discussed. 
No, like if you were a student of English literature, perhaps at Berkeley uh, a while ago, and you would have heard about all the great um, canon, the great canon of English literature, and you weren't informed that a lot of these people, whether Spencer, for example, uh, they were involved directly in in campaigns which are classified as genocide. I mean, the, the, their disposition was uh, towards that and supportive of that. So if if one wants to, one can extricate that from the totality. But I think we have to look at people holistically. Now, that doesn't mean or condemn his argument uh, to oblivion. I'm not, I'm not making that argument. But it's important to contextualize and also to contextualize the basis of his argument because it also helps us to understand specifically what the man is saying. That having been said, he's, he's, a, he's a brilliant man. He, he's a, a bold. His argument is bold. Uh, he's ambitious. Uh, he's challenging, and he produces some very uh, deep and penetrating insights. So I, I don't obscure that, but I, I just suggest that uh, when you come from a particular perspective, and remember that it was only a hundred years before the hippies that the, that the University of uh, Berkeley was planned, and that was planned in the context of the expansion of empire. They, they were informed of by a poem of of uh, Berkeley's. Uh, that that informed the naming of the place, which became uh, significant uh, in in your life. So it's not it's not far off. And I think sometimes the uh, the hippies believe they won the the the, the big war, but uh, I I beg to differ on that. As as a graduate student, I spent ten years in the city of Berkeley, and I always felt very proud that the city was named after a great philosopher, particularly an idealist philosopher who's pointing to the significance of consciousness. I never had a thought about all, all of these other issues that you're raising, so I'm very happy that you're raising them today. Now you might accuse me of being woke. <laughs> that's that's not the context uh, because the the issue uh, will become important and the issue is becoming important as people are becoming aware for example that he he was there in Rhode Island in 1729 1731 he was uh, in a slave trading colony and he, and he owned a few slaves himself and and that that's only part of, of the picture that you can read about that in the a recent biography by Tom Jones, from, I think he's based in the University of St. Andrews. I don't think the evidence is disputed now. So that's only part uh, of, of the picture, but that, that's a representative part of his whole, his, his whole nature. Remember, uh, to contextualize it, he was born in, in 1685. He was born in, a, in, in a, essentially a castle or associated with a castle in Ireland, which seems to have been there going back to the time of the Normans and going back to their arrival. So this is, again, the Anglo-Irish context of the ruling class. And in the context of 1685, we're only uh, a, a, a hundred years after the Reformation. And during this time in Ireland, there's a great shift of ownership uh, between uh, Catholic landowners to Protestant landowners. So there's a dispossession uh, of the Catholic landowners. And then, of course, uh, in 1690, we had William of Orange, the Dutch king, who is invited into Britain, to, and he defeats James uh, at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, and he stops off in Kilkenny on, on, on the way after his, 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 his battle. So um, Barclay was in this milieu of the Dutch 
king taking over the, uh, the, the kingdom, the empire, and instituting huge changes in life. But it's a, it leads to a concentration of this upper class ethos, where even the old English in, our, in, in, in Ireland would have been uh, dispossessed the ones that remained Catholics or ones who had adopted Irish culture. And, and, and so, so his allegiance are, are, are very important. And he, he, writes a, he writes a number of uh, treatises which are not so well known and not so well focused on about your obligation to be obedient, your obligation to be obedient to your master, your obli- obligation to be ob- obedient to your husband, your ob- obligation to be obedient to the state irrespective even if it's a tyrant. So uh, these are part of his DNA. So first and foremost, uh, he is part of that apparatus. As a churchman, he, 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 he goes to Trinity College in 1700. He gets his degree in 1704. Uh, in 1707, he becomes a fellow of Trinity College in Dublin, again, where, where, where I went to. And then he, 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 become, he, he becomes involved in, in the church, and he's a churchman until he becomes, he, 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 he's a chaplain, a dean, and finally the Bishop of Cloyne uh, in 1734. So uh, he, 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 his life and his work are embedded in that milieu. Now, it's an established church. So this point is very, very important, because when we're looking at the history of Protestantism, we have to distinguish between, I think, the established church and the, the, the Protestant sects outside that. For example, at the same time, when he's a young man, we have the uh, changes in Switzerland and Germany, out of which the Mennonites, the Anabaptists and the Amish come from, because they didn't want the, the, a coterminousness between the church and state. So th- it's not just an issue about Irish history. It's also an issue about institutional history, w- w- which persists. Uh, but his, he stresses again and again the obligation of obedience. And in his writings later, later he accepts slavery a- a- as part of that, uh, of that context. Now, other Protestant sects didn't, and they were be- beginning to lead the challenge. For example, the Quakers in the United States led they challenged the institution of slavery. And we can go back in the Catholic Church. We have papal uh, documents from the 1400s against slavery and the 1500s against slavery. The Christian view was against slavery in many senses. So he's going against that because he want, he, his primary interest is in the empire, in the, uh, the, dominant, uh, the dominant scheme of things. So it's an important part in which to contextualize the reading of his particular doctrines about idealism and immaterialism. Well, let's get into his philosophy. I'm sure many of our viewers will have heard his name, but really won't know much about his philosophy. Yeah. His, his, main, his philosophy was written just after about the time he became a fellow, and it's written in his ambition uh, to describe the world and to participate. And he also, he also wrote a lot about uh, mathematics and about natural philosophy. And his first book, in, in fact, was about the kind of philosophy of mathematics. But he's most well known for his, his, his new theory of vision in 1709, and then following that up, the principles of human knowledge in 1710, and later three dialogues with Hylas and Philonus in 1713. And they constitute the core of his philosophical viewpoint. He started off in that series 
looking at uh, a vision. And all the great scholars have to engage with the nature of vision and perception. And he's, he's entering into a debate, which again, a lot of the debate came from uh, the Netherlands, from Amsterdam and from Leiden and from the debates that were going over there and, of course, from, from Britain. So he's looking to people like uh, John Locke and Descartes and uh, various other, other thinkers from, from the Netherlands and from France and, and from Britain. And it's very important to understand this principle, and it makes it all clear to, uh, to, to understand this principle, that what his concern is, what his motivation is, is the growth of skepticism and atheism. And that's associated in his mind with materialism. So what he's seeking to do in the context, in the context of Trinity College, in the context of an established church, in the context of a, a wedded church and state, he's seeking to defend the very essence of their religious viewpoint of the world. And that's being challenged by materialism. So what he sets out to do first is, is to set out a theory of vision and, and to begin to, he makes very important points about the distinction between uh, sight and touch and uses that in, in an important way to distinguish between, to, to argue for a heterogeneity of senses, that there are different senses, they work in different ways, and we learn to put them together. Now, these insights are important, and they're still debated today in latest theories about vision, what aspects he got right and what aspects he got wrong. And this was a forerunner of his great his great insight, his great argument, and that's the immaterialist argument, uh, the argument which is associated with his idealism, the idea that the mind is, is crucial uh, and central in understanding the world. So when he comes to the principles of human knowledge, he explains his view of the world. So its principal objective is to attack materialism, and that involves an attack on the concept of matter. So he sees a big stack of of cards, a stack of dice, and his objective is to pull out the one at the bottom so the whole thing will cr come crashing down. So basically, his argument is, uh, and again, there's, there's foundation uh, for it in, in his theory of vision, he reduces the world to the spirit or mind or soul or the mental part uh, of, of our being, and he reduces the, uh, the whole, the rest of stuff, the whole things that we think are outside to ideas. So he refutes the idea that there, is, there are real things. I mean, Coca-Cola might claim to be the real thing. He says there are, there's no real things. There's no real things out there. We can only know the world through our senses. And matter doesn't matter because matter doesn't uh, exist. So his argument is that we, we know that we're spirits. We know that we're, we're some kind of mental being. We have minds. And the way that this mind knows about the world is through ideas which come to it. So the ideas come through our senses and they create senses or sensations or experiences. And these uh, feed the mind, if you like, and give us our impression. But there's the things out there, we can't know that they exist. Now, people interpret this as to say that he believes that there is nothing out there that there's no things out there. But he doesn't say that. He's very, very specific. And in, in paragraph 35 of the Principles of Human Knowledge, he specifically says, I'm not saying that we can't uh, experience real things, but he's saying that we can only know them 
in a mental way or in a spiritual way or, or uh, in in the context of our our soul that 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 idea which most people now folk, uh, describe as the mind but he was talking in a spiritual sense although he covered all his bases and it's true in that sense that in relation to our interpretation of the world we're reliant on what comes through the medium of our, our senses and this is this is the association or the why he's put into the category I suppose, of the empiricist and the British empiricist uh, is usually put in. And I think that's a, probably an accurate description. Uh, empiricist, imperial, empire kind of, kind of goes together. A lot of these, uh, and I don't think it's an accident. But uh, what he's doing, then, therefore, is set, he's counterpunching. He's setting up uh, an antithetical argument to the thesis that materialism is all that matters, that matter is crucial, because he sees that as the basis of all arguments in relation to the new world that's being proposed by the, by the scientists. And, and he, he, a lot of his arguments in relation to the nature of science as well, although he, he, he was innovative in his thinking about science, are, are, are clever, uh, accurate, and still relevant today. So uh, in, in many ways... Uh, I would rely on on, on a, a lot of his ar- arguments as well, or see a similarity uh, in them. Uh, for example, he attacks the basis of mathematics, which which is interesting. He he's against abstractionism, and this is a key methodology in his argumentation. He doesn't believe you can abstract things and talk about things in the abstract too much because they have no existence, uh, and in that sense. When he writes in 1720, 21, in Demotu, I think he's submitting it for, for an essay competition. He didn't win, Jeff, unlike, unlike you, but the, he, it's about motion. He's criticizing Newton, and he criticizes Newton because of New, Newton's idea of absolutes. And therefore, Popper argues, I think correctly, that Berkeley anticipated Mach and Einstein in his ideas of relativity. So that's a big claim, and it's, it's an interesting part. But essentially, it's this idea of the spirit, the mind, ideas coming into the mind, the mind being the crucial issue, the spirit being the only thing that's active, uh, the the rest is passive. It can create; they can create ideas, but they're not. Uh, they don't create agency, and but in this one thing which is important and to distinguish him from a lot of modern idealists, he believes that God is the is the overall organizer. So the like Underhill and Underhill liked idealism, although she rejected it in the end. She liked it very; she found it very seductive, as it is sedu- seductive and uh, intellectually that. The small spirit and, and a large spirit, this is the same thing that Berkeley sees, so that we're, we're all in, involved in the divine mind. And to, to, in many senses, this is not a new idea. We can find it in Indian theories. And also, last point, uh, his views were prefigured in many senses by the perhaps the greatest Irish philosopher, um, John Scotus Erugena, in the, uh, in the ninth century, and and he was an idealist who believed that the universe uh, was in the mind. And that has, argument has been made by people like Dermot Moran, for example. And the, the extent to which Berkeley may have known about Erugena is debated, but I, I think he did. And so some of these arguments go back to uh, the Greeks and they were they were developed in a, in, a, in a more comprehensive way, perhaps by people like Erugena, who everyone forgets. 
The key idea, if I'm correct, is that in order for something to exist, it must be perceived. Uh, the argument might be if a tree falls in the woods and nobody is there to hear it or see it, did it really exist at all? And uh, obviously, Barclay answers that question by saying, well, God is the you know, final observer of everything. If it wasn't for God uh, observing these things, they wouldn't exist. That's right. And so he's usually associated with variants, often mis misrepresented of the, uh, but, but the essence is there of that uh, to be is to be perceived. Now, there's an important qualification I would put on this because I, I think there's a conflation that, 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 that there's a, a slip that, 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 that's not noticed in some of the, the, the discussions about this. When he uses, when we use the, the verb to be, to be or not to be, that can often in other languages be translated in two different forms. There's usually two verbs associated with the verb to be, which we don't talk in those terms without get, uh, in English. So when he's talking about uh, to be is to be perceived, and he's referring to the object. Uh, my criticism would be that it's not being in, in in a deeper sense, and this is what the earlier ones like Erugena would say. He would say there's being and there's non-being. So when he says to be, he uses it in in two different senses. So the the object that he doesn't think exists, he often refers to being. Uh, and I, I think there's a, a little kind of conflation there sometimes that when he's talking about being, he is talking about us being as the perceiver, uh, but he also uses being to refer to these ideas which are outside, which don't have that active force. And I, I think there's a, there's a slight uh, nuance there that makes it a bit easier for his argument, his notion of being uh, can, can be looked at. We always, like as he does, we have to think that he's constructing an argument based on some axiomatic foundation, which is where we want to look for the weaknesses of his his argument. But uh, this his, the, surprisingly, the pragmatists believed that he was a forerunner of them. Now, I, I can't understand that argument, but the pragmatists believe that. I, do, I don't agree with that uh, on their terms. Um, and certainly Philip K. Dick was heavily influenced or used this idea as an artistic device in many of his books. So a lot of science fiction would utilize this, uh, this idea as well. And of course, his views prefigure a lot of the contemporary theories about uh, conscious agency, for example. Well, I gather that one of the real weaknesses of his philosophy is that if, if you take it to its logical extent, it seems to lead to solipsism, meaning the idea that I can't prove that anything exists outside of my own consciousness. So maybe I am God. There's, uh, I was thinking about that argument recently, and he, he would uh, defend it in, in that sense, and he would, he would view it differently. And in fact, which surprises me as well, Yeats believed that he was doing quite the opposite. Yeats believed that he was giving, he was a great admiration for Berkeley, and he believed that by concentrating on the spirit and the the great spirit, if you like, as well, that he was 
giving something back that we had lost. Now, I'm not sure I agreed with that. And even Yates was beginning to see that there was two different Barclays. There was Barclay uh, from his notebooks early on in the in the first decade of the 18th century. And there was the later Barclay, who he sees as a bit different. But he, he was very proud of him. So the, the, the other argument, the argument that there's a kind of retreat into the mind, I think has, has validity. And where it has validity... Uh, he, you could say that when he's saying that his ideas out there that, uh, that, that the soul or the mind perceives, that really it extends the mind, it extends, we could interpret it in that way, that it extends into a field. So then, therefore you get into the domain of Federico, Fagin and those ideas. It's an extension because it means that you can actually participate in a vast array of universe and that would go back or tie into the earlier ideas uh, of idealism but where i do think that it those fears uh, and you did an interview with um, i think it was lombardo about about this where he, he suggests something uh, similar i think there's there's uh, there's truth in that there's a, there's a kind of disorientation associated with following this logic uh, where I think it, it manifests today is this theory of conscious agency, where people like Hoffman are saying that, well, actually, we can't perceive the world at all, and we don't interpret reality uh, properly, and only mathematics can show us, only science can show us what the real world is like. And that leads to a defeat, if you like, of common sense. It leads to a disorientation of the individual in relation to their environment. And I think that there is, in in, in my view, my fear is that as Berkeley was able to institute an argument which suited a certain theoretical perspective, which suited an imperial view, including its church, established church of that, that a similar argument can be used to defend the empire of scientism, to defend the shift into a mental state, to, to defend the movement away from the body towards transhumanism, to defend the idea, well, Jeffrey, you're not all those things. You're just some pattern of information in your head, and that is, is who you are. But there's a kind of reductio, reductio ad absurdum. So we have to follow in and then find, well, well where is? Although, although Berkeley... Uh, concedes that there's memory and imagination in this spirit, there is a kind of reductionism that can be involved in it when we say, well, well, where are the senses? Where do they end? What do they mean? Where do you find this spirit? And this is, this is the thing that they had been looking for in the body when they were doing their their studies in, in Holland and they were beginning to have these arguments and why Descartes was, he was in Amsterdam at a particular time and he's, he's beginning to look at this discourse when they're beginning to look inside to try and find this thing inside. Now, to a certain extent, I think that the the solipsism fear uh, could be rebutted, but it indicates a trend towards an insulated view and that denies the world in some sense. It denies the physicality. And where my problem with that is, is because Berkeley and his class denied things that were there. They denied, for example, he didn't have any regard for the, the savages, the native people of North America. He didn't obviously have any deep regard for the, for the slaves or for the people that were inferior. And he certainly, at the bottom of all that, below the savages, 
and below the the, the slaves were, were were the Irish and some of the because they were always uh, they were always uh, dirty and lazy and in the books they they they, they always say about oh, it's great charitable works and all that well. When you have taken over a land and expropriated all the best and uh, you're getting and using your mercantilist philosophies to, to get the, the best of what you can get out, it's easy to, to be a bit charitable because they were, when he was Bishop of Cloyne, they were outnumbered eight to one. You have to maintain some kind of, of purchase on the community or you're going to be, maybe the people on the last legs will finally mount uh, a rebellion against you. So a lot of this charitable stuff comes at a great cost and you have to take it with a bit of pinch of salt it's a bit like the altruism of the victorians a home to the poor after impoverishing them in the industrial society so uh yes the the the, the point is there is that solipsistic element and part of it reflects this internalization of a kind of ruling class in my view i think it's it's related to that you referenced an earlier video I did with Thomas Lombardo in which he described uh, he, he had fits of anxiety and dizziness. It's almost as if he was going insane studying the uh, philosophy of Berkeley. And I'm going to link to that video in case some of our viewers might be interested in the if, if you're system is capable of accepting YouTube links. It'll be in the upper right-hand corner of of your screen. But while I'm thinking about it, James, that painting of yours behind you, I think, is pretty important. You mentioned the influence of the Dutch. There's very clearly a, a Dutchman behind you uh, in, in that painting. And if I recall correctly, this is a, at a time when the Dutch are pioneering the study of the human physiology. They're engaging in anatomy. Yes, in, in the 17th century, the Dutch are the powerhouse in many senses in exploration, in establishing corporations, the East India Company uh, over there, in, in exploring the world, uh, in sending out the ships. Uh, in a maritime nation, very pragmatic, utilizing Calvinist ideas to uh, to establish new corporate forms. A lot of the forms came from Dutch Dutch ideas. They were pioneering in relation to botany, of course. They were pioneering in relation to uh, exotic plants, uh, analyzing them. And they're always very pragmatic and involved in practice. So it was from the practice that ideas came. So the practice came first and theorizing uh, came later. And Later on in Barclay's career, uh, he, although he was trying to distinguish himself from Locke and uh, from other, uh, Pierre Bale was another one, uh, he, later on he attacks uh, Bernard Mandeville, who is a, a doctor in England who was born in the Netherlands and had studied with some of these people. And he was a, he was, he wrote the fable of the bees and he, attacked this kind of hypocrisy that he saw uh, in charity, for example, and he would be attacking um, the views of, of people of people like Barclay. And, and that led, led Barclay to attack him directly, and I think it was an Alsafron, a later, a later uh, work. But the Dutch, uh, when they were studying the, the human body, that, that's a reference to just a quotation from 
a famous uh, painting by Rembrandt and his doctor Tulp's anatomy lesson, and Tulp's uncle would have been involved in the East India Company. They were all, it was a very closely knit environment, uh, the apothecaries and the chemists and, and, and the various studies. And it was so, because of the concentration in Amsterdam and Leiden, there was a great cross-fertilization, and Descartes went there as well. So for some, for some doctors... Uh, this meant, this showed that the, the body was a machine. For others, they would say, well, this is proof of God's great uh, power to create things. And that if you look in the body, you still couldn't find the animating factor. This was before, later on, Galvani and that began to, you know, electrocute the, fro- the dead frogs to show the electric charges in the, in, in the body. But it, it, it was very, very important in relation to the origin of debates about God and nature, we had Spinoza, etc., that, that informed the discourse. So it, it really is a central point. So this connection is there in, in all his writing. There's, there, there's some engagement. And of course, the origin of, of, the, of William of Orange goes back to, to the Netherlands. So, so there, there's an interesting connection or juxtaposition of the power of of, of secular power and a, a new intellectual power uh, uh, as well, um, and but that con- that context is important, and it's it would also explain why some of the old arguments couldn't be used, and Barclay knew this; he couldn't appeal to vague things that could be disproven uh, by anatomy lessons by study of the body, by studies of mechanisms. So he had to begin and focus on this particular issue of the metaphysical nature of, of matter. Uh, and and, and that, that's where the argument, uh, if you like, emanates from in many senses. Well, earlier you pointed out that uh, Berkeley has been associated with the pragmatists, which is a uniquely American philosophy, but I think what I'm hearing you say is that the Dutch were much more pragmatic than Barclay was. Well, the the pragmatists say that he was a forerunner because he began to look at the meaning of words and this. And I, I don't find it very persuasive. Why I would not find him pragmatic is because he starts off with a fundamental a priori assumption about trying to uh, uh, accepting that God exists and the spirit exists and to refute to refute the matter argument. So it's kind of very predetermined in relation to where it's going, which seems to me inconsistent with what, what the pragmatists claim about our method in some sense. But certainly his methodology uh, is similar in, in, to, to examine the meaning in that, uh, but I, I don't find it particularly persuasive. The Dutch are certainly very, very pragmatic. They share that in common, I think, with the, the Swedes are quite prag- pragmatic people as well uh, to make a generalization. And th- there is that, that trend in, in England and, and, and Britain uh, of that particular mentality. So, uh, but the Dutch were notoriously uh, pragmatic about focusing on means, ends, methods, what produces results, and focusing on experiments, which, of course, in, in the UK context, we can look at Bacon, another great imperialist that people forget about, uh, Francis Bacon and his method. So they're focusing on experiments. So this is focusing on something we can demonstrate on experience, which is, is really part of uh, a demonstrable 
aspect of of the uh, empirical method that we we can demonstrate we can show it we can prove to people we don't rely on vague rational ideas about humors in the body or or some of these things and they certainly had a powerful influence on the necessity therefore for someone arguing about spirit to be very specific and very forensic uh, about their argument which is is uh, the beauty, I suppose, of Barclay's arguments, that it's an, it's an elegant argument. It's confined to a narrow base in many senses. It doesn't have the implications. That, it doesn't dis- destroy everything out there if we look carefully at what he said. And it's very persuasive. I mean, it's a good description of how we perceive the world. Uh, so I, I don't refute any of that. And his critique of science and scientific method and ma- mathematics actually can be utilised to challenge some of these ideas of conscious agency because he, he regards them as further from, from the truth. To believe that there's some inherent power in symbols is a great mistake because one, one of his big uh, ideas was that vision was a language that we see, we interpret the world in accordance with signs. These are signs produced by God. And that actually is consistent with Islamic, a lot of Islamic uh, uh, philosophy. So there's, there's an, another... Uh, base there. but Well, I know you've uh, expressed a strong interest in the uh, Illuminationist school of Suro Vardy. And, and you've actually, in one of our previous conversations, contrasted that with Barclay's idealism. I think, if I recall correctly, you found the Illuminationist philosophy went much deeper than Barclay's. What I would argue is that there is the idea that we seem to renounce the real world uh, becomes a, a problem because that is the critique of a lot of, from Native Native American theology and, and, and as we must call it theology about the great spirit and nature. The argument is that we're failing to see the the power, the inherent spirit, the inherent nature of the uh, of the external world. So. If we come to this retreat into the mind, we can end up in a totally different place than if by engaging in the incarnated world, in, 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 the, uh, in the real world out there. And in fact, that's another important point. If we look at critics of technology and technique like Jacques Ellul and Bernard Charbonneau, they end up saying that the thing that we're missing out on is this idea of incarnation and uh, one of them wasn't uh, uh, religious but it, it's it, the, the significance of the body which which is a crucial idea uh, in a where is the body in this and associate that well where is is the body of nature now if we go back to the early celtic philosophers erugena and that they believed in in the bible the uh, the, the book of god and the, and the book of nature they were they were coterminous so they don't reject this my fear is that there's a retreat now we could solve it in some way if we look at people like david bohm and we we have a a, a, a more combined view where he's He's building, well, he, he doesn't necessarily build on, on Surawardi. I, I would, but if we take Surawardi's idea that we have the light of reason and we have the openness to illumination uh, of revelation in a personal form, because as, as uh, Christ said in many contexts, well, we are light, and particularly in the non canonical Gospel of Thomas. 
that uh, we are beings of, of light and we come from a place of light, that we are in fact light of a, of a higher order, as a lot of the the near-death experiences uh, or the movement and the other domains indicate or in, in, in Buddhist thinking as well. And then we have to account for, well, what is this external environment? And when we look at people like David Bohm and that, they begin to talk about terms of frozen light, the idea that, well, actually, we're talking about uh, something that appears in one way, but in fact, at its base, is some other category of the original substance that creates the entirety. So uh, we don't dismiss what's out there, or we don't in any way make redundant what's out there. We, we interpret it in a different way that enables us to properly comprehend the natural world and the idea of beings, us other beings, and nature itself, which, again, the Celtic uh, theologians would, would have accounted for. So my concern, I think that Illuminationism, including the, 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 the most modern, the most enlightened theories about reality and quantum theory, uh, indicate that we can find a greater connection uh, between these uh, ideas, which don't take away any of the elements, but don't lead to an idea that we in somehow don't understand the beauty and significance and form of nature and also of the human body, because this is the concern, because in transhumanism, they don't like the human body. It's, it's, it's an impediment. The natural world, that order is something that has to be transcended. And idealism in a particular form could help in that moving away, providing intellectual ammunition to the people that have to prove. So you're brought in and, and you have to prove you have to disprove uh, Berkeley's thesis in order to be allowed to persist. And interestingly, the one, the, the one thing that struck me in particular from your talk with Stefan Schwartz about 2060, the one thing that I, I thoroughly agree with is his anticipation of the, or from his work of the origin of a new uh, humanoid that he called Homo Superior. Now, uh, if that's not frightening enough for people, if they don't get the implications of the arrival of the new humans that Philip K. Dick anticipated, as we become the Neanderthals, as we become the old humans if we don't progress, uh, well, a lot of these theories of idealism, conscious agency, are will be used to provide the intellectual background for for the, for the new human, that Homo superior, and that Homo uh, superior will be based and will have some connections of, in in a way that the mind does as part of a greater mind, a hive mind. So, when you take out God, take out spirit, uh, you can come to a philosophy that supports this 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 new world. And um, Popper talked about Berkeley and. Instead of Occam's razor, he talked about Barclay's razor. Now, I don't think it's a razor. I think it's a meat chopper. When Barclay came to his arguments to get to this refutation of materialism, of matter, he applies a meat cleaver and chops everything away till what's left is what he wants. Now, this is what the transhumanist uh, will do and what the, the, new, the new being that will, will, seeks to take over from us 
uh, will do. So I think we have to, it makes us go back to who we are to understand some of what the mystics were saying about the nature of light in a deeper sense, which ties in probably more with, again, Federico Fagin and his ideas of the field of consciousness, which I think is is uh, more accurate. And he understands about uh, he understands about mysticism, unlike uh, Hoffman, for example. There's a difference between they seem to be similar, but but there's a, there's, a, there's quite a bit of difference. So illuminationism uh, can provide an, an all-encompassing, uh, a broader view, in my view, but we cannot get away, and we have to deal with this issue about the, the human body. It's a, it, it's a fundamental issue. What does the human body mean in the, in the future, in the context of post-humanism, transhumanism, even some of the implications of Buddhist thought? And this is where the philosophy of Christianity, I think, has something to say, the meaning of Christianity. Barclay's arguments helps a lot of Christian argument by by making them not as difficult to make about the nature of resurrection and all that. If you don't believe in these things, the more uh, ideas, it's easier, uh, but but a bit of a cheat in many senses. But it, it focuses on those issues. So I do think illuminationism uh, in, in a contemporary form can be more comprehensive, but we still don't get away from that idea of what is the human, what, what is the significance of the body, and the idea that we're still a, a, a particular unique individual, which in some of the theories of idealism, as you know, sees us as disassociated, which, which, which is, a, is an interesting area of discourse. There is an episode early on in, in Barclay's life when he was a young man uh, in which he, uh, he was observing, if, if I recall the story correctly, people being executed, uh, I think maybe in the by hanging and and he wanted to know for himself what was it like to die so he he actually engaged in hanging himself so he could experience that yeah he, he, this this was was disputed later on but uh, recently scholars believe that the earliest account of this which i think was about 1762 was probably written by oliver goldsmith another poet who went to trinity college and uh, Barclay knew a lot of these people. He was friends with Jonathan Swift as well, which uh, who was around at that time and close in many senses. Uh, but the story, which I believe to be true, is that they witnessed a a hanging. Now this would be this would be fairly normal in in Ireland at the time. This would be entertainment for the upper class, I think. Uh, but so when Barclay goes out with a, and he sees this hanging, he's wondering about well, what does it feel like? And what, and he he may have been wondering about whether the the tables were turned and preparing himself in his head because i mean this, this there was an ongoing there was the disputes going on for hundreds of years and in his in his later time as bishop of cloyne he was involved in the militia in in, in cork and so you'd be able to raise up uh, a group of people armed uh, protestants to defend the state you have them in the in the, in the united states uh, that the, the, the theory and the constitution goes back to some of these contexts actually um so in, in order to understand the constitutional context that's important but yes so they go and see this hanging and they say we'll try that ourselves the second guy that was there that helped him in hanging himself now again we have to don't do this at home to, to anybody, but uh, we have to put out that warning, Jeff. Uh, but the, the, uh, his friend had the wisdom of not going through it when he saw what happened to Barclay. But, so they did apparently uh, hang him. He, he was to 
protect, his friend was to protect him, but it went on a bit longer than they thought it would have, or it was a bit more scary. Now, uh, whether this is a near-death experience or not, I don't know. Uh, it's described as a near-death experience, but you know that a lot of people describe near-death experiences in a non-technical sense, not in the, in the moody sense, but to describe when someone nearly dies. It may have, it may have focused his, his attention or not. Sometimes his, he, he's described as, as uh, mystical, but I, I don't really see it. I see him, uh, I, I don't see that mystical element in him, although later on uh, he becomes very interested in the ether, and in his later work series and that he's he's changed in in the things he's interested in. He's very interested in cures. He's very interested in tar water, uh, which was the, I suppose the Coca Cola of the eighteenth uh, century in Ireland. And he's treating people. He's treating a, a, a giant, for example, as he was described. He uh, was seven foot nine, coming to him for his pains. Uh, and Barkley gets up at four o'clock in the morning. He's, he, he's, he's an interesting character when he's living in, uh, as the bishop in Cloyne and with his, surrounded by his art collection, with some great art collection and having plenty of music sessions uh, and giving out about other people living in luxury. Uh, but uh, he, uh, he, th- whether that was a near-death experience, I don't know. I don't think there's any evidence of th- that that was important uh, later on in, in, in his life. Really, what you're suggesting here is that in in spite of some of the great insights that one can find in his philosophy, that ultimately it's been corrupted by his imperialist view of the world. Well, I would say there's, there's a bit we haven't talked about, which which was the big, the big endeavor of his life. After he done, he starts off and he he writes those books, uh, and he gets known to some extent. Uh, and, and writes some more books and writes his books about obedience and that. The great project in his life was to set up a college in Bermuda. This was the big project in his life. This is why he comes to Rhode Island in 1729. And this is why his association with education. So he has read about Bermuda and he sees, well, it's a nice place. He believes it's very central for the empire in the, in the fight against Spain and that. So he wants to establish uh, a college there. And the college is primarily going to help in the education of some slaves and native people. So he's going to educate the native people. Now, not the native people in Bermuda, because the Native Americans are, are, are not there. But the implication is, which is quite clear, that the the Native Americans are going to be captured and brought to there for their elevation in in uh, you know among the other the, the, the slave systems and the plantations uh, in the Caribbean. So his his whole project, which he got he got uh, royal or parliamentary support for royal and parliamentary support, he he he, he goes to Rhode Island. He's trying to he raises some money. Uh, but it, it fall it falls true. But he wants to go there. I mean, he doesn't have any great love of Ireland. He 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 he's, he's always unsure about the possibility of rebellion, which he warns everyone against. You know, because it's a bad thing. You have to be obedient, uh, and he doesn't particularly like, in many senses, a lot of the things there. But Bermuda appeals to him. 
He's quite ambitious, and I think he saw it as a nice place to retire to. Now, you can say, oh, well, this noble man was going off, but he had read, and in his descriptions, he describes it as a beautiful place. So he he is hard set on this college. But the implications of this college would have been of the kidnapping of uh, the kidnapping of Native Americans, a small bunch of them, so they could be trained uh, as Anglicans and then sent back to their people. Now, so if you take the fact of his involvement in slavery, if you take the objective of the Bermuda College, and then if you read what he wrote in uh, 1735, 1737, he wrote a book which was framed in terms of questions uh, called The Queerist, and in that, he's asking questions, which are obviously his things he's suggesting. And he's, he's saying, well, if a person is imprisoned or enchained, they should be used to work. You know, so he's kind of anticipating the chain gangs. He's, he, he, that, that's the implication. If a person is, is imprisoned as for, for, for being a beggar, they, we should get something out of them. So he's anticipating this awful utilitarianism that was associated with Jeremy Bentham, that informed the uh, the plantations in Australia, the, the convict colonies, that, in, that still informed criminal justice in the United States and the chain gangs uh, in, in relation to using the prisoners to, for economic activity. So this is part of that imperial attitude, and I think it's very, very much alive. And it comes and you say, well, well what Christian bit does that come from? What doctrine of Christianity is he referring to here? So in this, I see a lot of what he would criticize as deism. I don't see a lot of Christian feeling. And this is another critique that non-Westerners say about, uh, about the idea of the senses. In, in Chinese philosophy as well, the heart is a sensory organ and the heart is ignored in relation to uh, in how we interpret the world in the, in the limited five sense. There's a similar thing in Africa. And in this, you're reading it and you're saying, well, this man is not a very sympathetic man at base. If, if you're on the wrong side, if you're not in the picture, if you're not in his particular, uh, he would have applied as well the same exclusions to Presbyterians and dissenting traditions. It wasn't just Catholics as well. So Presbyterians were discriminated against in Ireland, which a lot of people are not familiar with and don't, don't understand. So the, 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 the non-established Protestants got, got a hard time in a lot of this and were alienated from the systems of power, which is why they, they, they also became uh, Republican. So if you put a lot together, you're asking yourself, well, where is the heart bit? Where is the love and all this? And it becomes this, you see, you see more of the left brain mentality. And there's a book, The Day Is Now Spent, which is based on interviews with Cardinal Sarah, the African cardinal in the Catholic Church. And his critique of the West is, is, is quite interesting. He says, the West refuses to love. This is the problem. It's a, it's, it's a refusal it's a profound statement. The West refuses to love. And I think there's a refusal to love in this mentality, this mentality of obedience, of hierarchy, of submission, of domination, of empire, of exploitation. It can't be distinguished. So as I'm sure that a lot of my Protestant friends, a lot of the people in the Barclian societies will say, oh, you're being unfair. He was charitable to the people. He did good. He provided a basis. Uh, I understand all that, but ultimately, I believe that his philosophy, his disposition, is similar 
to the imperial scientism disposition that informs scientism that is going to make this new homo superior that uh, Schwartz has has indicated, uh, which I think is correct, uh, and that that's the, that's of the same ilk, and it's lacking that fundamental compassion. Now, now in relation to to, I'm not a, a critic of Christianity and around. I'm I, I am critical of this idea of this established uh, establishment of. Christianity in a form, especially with imperialism, I am very critical. It was the biggest mistake that he ever met. And also one of the reasons why Barclay wanted to get out of Europe was that he believed that Europe was on the decline. And sometimes you get a sense as well that he understood in, in some of his writing that a lot of this free thinking, atheism and decline came about as a result of the Reformation, but it was taken too far. So he understands that they're part and parcel of this decline, which is why the empire has to shift to America and is why the university was called, well, Berkeley, after after Berkeley, uh, because of his imperial vision. And they saw the place where the empire could expand to the West and create the arts. And as a result of that, you get Hollywood, the military-industrial complex in California. So then the question, as now people are being discussed, well, uh, what about, how does this continue today and how should we interpret this today? And it goes back to our argument about uh, wokeism and that. I say, maintain Berkeley, maintain Berkeley as the name because it indicates the schizophrenic nature of some of these debates. The idea that of window dressing doesn't get at the base of, of, this, of this will to dominate. Uh, so, yeah, by all means, celebrate the man. He's he's been celebrated. He's been celebrated for 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 a long time by a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people won't have read him, and, and they don't they don't care either. Uh, he, he he has had the celebration. I say uh, it's it's worthwhile to to study his work to see what he was saying. It's certainly very useful uh, in some parts, but in the context of the other things, and uh, you don't condemn anybody by. By certain things, but that man should have known that that slavery was wrong. You can might there might be another document that turns around and says he released them afterwards. He was trying to liberate them. Uh, I, I don't think so, but we 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 can leave that possibility because it's only a recent addition to the studies, and that may happen. So 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 I'm not putting it all on those issues, but in relation to his in the round consistently, this idea of obedience is. It's like in that that, that film, uh, "They Live, Obey." This that would have you, you remember in that film, "They Live," where they put on the glasses and they're seeing signs, signs, "Obey," all these subliminal messages. That that would have been uh, Barclay's message as well. So, so uh, I, I think people bow down before these people too much. The idea of uh, a jolly Irish bishop. You know, coming up with these great theories that are very useful and all that, we really have to see them in the full context. And I, I'm not, I'm not in any way arguing for exclusion of any of these views or any of any of that, because we have to learn the lessons from these uh, from lives and learn more about their lives. Give them their their just uh, their just desserts. Give them the credit. Give them the respect they deserve. But also point out the, the the critical elements and ask why that happens and ask. How is that relevant in relation to the contemporary issues today? Because it is. And his his logic is dizzying and his logic is disorientating. 
and we have to be able to deal with that. We have to be because now we're in a context of an existential issue about the future of of the human race and a Homo sapiens. If we can't even argue for ourselves about who and what we are, well, then that explains why we're going to lose the species to this uh, hybrid in in the future. So, uh, so none of my arguments are to underrate his significance. I just want to appreciate the full context. Well, if we look at the history of philosophy, how would you rank uh, Berkeley? If you talk to, as you have done many times about Castrop uh, and people like that, would would be able to have, or would have a different view. In my in my view, I think he, from an Irish philosophy uh, perspective, he doesn't. He, he's not superior to the uh, Christian philosophers like John Scotus Erugena, uh, that he he is very informed by the Platonic and Greek con, uh, context because this is what they studied uh, at college. Um, and so I, I, would, I wouldn't put him above that ninth uh, century thinker personally because I think he had a, a wider view. That having been said, he's, he's, a, he's a very bold thinker. Uh, it's, it's not elements of appeal to me. Uh, I don't think he worked as hard on his, th- his theological perspective, actually. I, funnily enough, I don't think it's as convincing. There's an assumption there rather than a defense. Some people find a very convincing argument for God. And out of it, uh, he left the heart. Uh, I think he's a very significant thinker in relation to science, as Popper and people noted. Uh, it may be exaggerated because of course, we could take the German idealists, and the German idealists directly were influenced by Erugena, for example. Uh, and then, uh, if you compare them with Goethe, it's difficult. Uh, but for a lot of philosophers, as 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 far as I can tell, they would still rate him quite highly in 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 the in the top dozen. And funny enough, his theories are becoming relevant again in the context of transhumanism and this idea of utilizing different ways to create senses by uh, by mixing them and by substituting them. So they're beginning to look again at some of his theories. So that continuing use uh, is important. But um, again, I'm sure it's like league tables. Everyone would have have a different view. He's not. He's certainly not my favourite one. Uh, although I have a huge respect, I, I would certainly. Uh, I, I would look to the earlier ones. I think we've forgotten about. There's a recency bias in many senses, and we we, we look at the recent philosophers and we forget the older ones because they're more difficult to uh, to engage with. I think there was there was uh, there's a lot of forgotten thinkers from the eight uh, hundreds uh, to the to the uh, 1300s as well. A lot of your writings focus on the dangers of scientism and particularly the dangers of transhumanism and the idea of merging the human being with with machines that we come become more robot like ourselves and and your concern I think is that Barclay offers a 
a superficial philosophy that might uh, combine with this d- dangerous scientism and transhumanism and, and give it a, a patine of idealism, a focus on consciousness without really penetrating these heartfelt issues that you've also raised. Yeah, the word that uh, I would use is sophisticated. He has a very sophisticated argument. And I would use that word because it combines in a, the Greek sophist element in its original form. It's a kind of specious argument, so, but, but as well as the modern, the modern feel of a sophisticated, clever argument. It's a very sophisticated argument. And w- the human is going to, the onus of proof is going to shift. The things that you believed were accepted are going to disappear. So it'll be like that. this thing they do in, in certain job practices where you get a job and then you have to defend your job when they're going through a reevaluation and defend your position or whatever. You know that, that process that they do in, in, in companies uh, where they shift the owners back and, and say, and what are you doing? Although you were employed by them and did what you were told, for example. In future, the, the human is going to have to do this more and more to justify their existence, to justify their existence relative to machines, to automata, uh, to, the, to the system, to uh, justify their existence because of the uh, implications for uh, the planet as well. This, this is part of this measurement system. So if we don't know who we are, we don't even know what, what uh, human consciousness is, we can't explain it. Uh, what will happen is that the computational theory of mind will dominate. And in when we're set against the computational theory of mind and when we're competing against, uh, against algorithms in a narrow context, we, we, we can't win because that's not what human consciousness is. And when you go back to people like yeah, you've talked with uh, Dreyfus, for example, who, under, who, who understood these arguments very well from a philosophical perspective and wrote about the limitations of com- computing and, 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 and the analogy with computers. They understood that. And people say, well, of course, this consciousness is not the same as human consciousness. But that doesn't mean that we can't be controlled by a lower form of mechanical uh, intervention in in human consciousness. So so that's the problem. It's uh, so if we do not understand the totality and richness and expansiveness of human consciousness, which, as far as I can understand, Jeff, is the essence of your life work. Although you say, well, he's a great parapsychologist, he's a great this, he's a great broadcast, he's a great uh, in all the different domains that you've excelled. As far as I can understand, it goes back to the roots of consciousness and it goes back to mysticism and it goes back to describing or indicating in the fullest range possible of human consciousness. Now, uh, that's what I, I believe in as well and the richness and the, the nuances and the contradictory nature and the paradoxicality of all those things and the difficulty of definition and the muta- mutability of that, the, the right-hand brain flowing tau of, of, of all that um, that it, it's not reductionist. It, it, there's, a, there's an element, a methodological element that has to be, but that can't be applied uh, to, to the whole thing. And it certainly could be used in a sophisticated way, as a sophisticated argument, to justify the idea that we can't know what the world is, to make us more insecure, to make us doubt uh, what, what we see 
to make us doubt the census that a few years ago they were telling us were uniquely adopted over millions of years to deal with this fine-tuned universe. So the whole argument uh, has been that evolution leads us to adaptation to this fine-tuned universe. Now all of a sudden we don't know anything about we don't know anything about what's out there. So that doesn't make sense to me. I, th- I think it's there's a there's a lot of maneuvers, and that's a word that I would associate with uh, Barclay's arguments as well. It's what we hear in a lot of contemporary philosophy that it's maneuvers, and so it's a game, and the game is associated with a political game, and the political game is associated with furthering scientism, which is furthering the the military and industrial complex. Last word I'll say, Jeff, on this. There was a book written in 1989 called Cyber, a small book uh, of uh, Cyborg Worlds, uh, and it was it was written uh, in, in the US, and it was a, a group of thinkers who were talking about the way we were becoming cyborgs as a result, the direct influence of the military-industrial complex and the projection of their methodology, information systems, paradigms, onto the education system and onto society. And again, California is an important uh, part in that. Um, So all these things, philosophers can end up being useful idiots for the system if they don't really understand how there's an instrumental element behind philosophy, how these are part of the game and that our theories can be used for something else totally other than their idea of providing a description of the world. And Barclay himself didn't believe in this in the way that you have a theory and you you live every day by that theory. He's not Diogenes living in a, in a barrel in, in Athens or whatever. So, so, so we have to understand that some of these philosophies are maneuvers, are policies, are strategies, are tactics used in the overall game. And I think, yes... Uh, the sophistication of Barclay's argument uh, is definitely going to be used. And I I think, in fact, it's one of the best candidates to be a base for this uh, new evolving uh, order. And uh, if we look at Nietzsche, for example, whatever we want to say about his writings, not only was he used by the Nazis, now we can't blame him necessarily on these, but he was also used by the Bolsheviks. By the Bolsheviks, there's an interesting book by Rosenthal on, on, on that. So we can't necessarily blame the philosophers, but if the philosophers are not aware of the wider context in which their theories feed into, or if they are actively involved in the wider context, the, 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 uh, in the penumbra of that uh, military-industrial complex, and they're pro- promoting these arguments, I get concerned, and I'm going to defend the human spirit uh, and the panoramic and beautiful nature of the possibilities that we have and of perceiving the world in all its different realities, in all its different magics. We can embrace these thinkers, learn about them, look at their process of argumentation and develop better arguments ourselves. And maybe the lesson we should learn from Barclay's life is to develop arguments as sophisticated as he has done so that we can apply them to the the positions that we want to advocate. Well, James Tunney, once again, a very enlightening conversation. I've learned a great deal about Bishop Barclay from you that I actually had no conception of before. So I want to thank you very much for being with me today. 
Thank you very much, Jeff. And I'm fascinated listening to your 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 debates and your monologues and your, your discussions and seeing these teams being brought together and as they evolve and as they, you, you, you emphasize different points, it's it's very, very useful for, for me as well to see how, how you draw these things together in our conversations. I learn a lot, so I appreciate that. So thank you very much. You're welcome. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.